This is the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavilla. A guy who's a fan of sex. Here's Dr. Shauna and Joe. Dr. Shauna. Hi. Yes. Welcome Hi. to episode 30 of the Science of Sex podcast. <laughs> Number 30. Now today, you know, we, you know, I always joke about how some of our episodes might make people feel uncomfortable uh-huh. because of certain maybe kink factors or something mm-hmm. that maybe they're not used to hearing. But today mm-hmm. may feel people may feel uncomfortable for a different set of reasons. Yeah. Because we're dealing with cheating. <laughs> My God, you you made that sound so very dramatic, right? Ominous. Yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so, we're gonna talk about why people cheat. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And we got an expert. Hopefully, we have an expert. <laughs> who, yes. <laughs> no, we're just gonna have a bunch of people who cheated, oh, and we're right. gonna talk to them. Cool. We have Dr. Dylan Selterman from the University of Maryland, who recently published a paper on this exact topic: why people cheat. So we're gonna grill him on this question. Okay. Cool. And on an unrelated but sort of related note, I know you just wrapped up your run at the Hacienda with the uh, sex social science things. What do you call them again? Sex and social. Sex science. Socials. One day he learned. Uh, how did it go? Because I know. Wait, we, how is that related to this? Well, because you're open, open relationships. I said unrelated, but not related. I, I don't, I don't see the connection. No, because, you keep relating open relationships to infidelity. That is just not okay. No, but that's, that's not what I. Not okay. You know that's They're not very what different. I mean. One is consensual non-monogamy. Right. The other one is non-consensual non-monogamy. I feel like you're gonna reach over and like punch me or something like that. I, I said just, unrelated, I, but not related. I was so, <laughs> sort of. I, I did say that. I'm not. Trust me. I understand knowing you for the last six months. Okay, or so, fine, fine. I do. They're know. both. A form of non-monogamy. Yes. I'll give you that. Okay. Yes. One is consensual. One is non-consensual. All right. Awesome. All right. Can we get back? To- so, yes, we had our last sex science social on the topic of open relationships or consensual non-monogamy, and it went really well. I think people liked it. And oh, so that's they- it. No more. You're never doing it again? Well, no more for the time being on this particular topic because we did four in yeah, a row. Okay. Four months of consensual non-monogamy, different aspects of it, mm-hmm. but still, uh, it's time to take a little break from that particular topic and do something else. Ooh. And for the next event, which we already scheduled, it's going to be on May 23rd. At the Hacienda. At the Hacienda, the Sex Positive Intentional Community. And if you can be there in person, you can watch it online because we stream them on my Facebook uh, page and profile. And this one is going to be on negotiating enthusiastic Ooh. consent in this Me Too era. And particularly, we're going to talk about the gray zone. Mm. And we've talked quite a bit on the podcast about how difficult it is to really figure out what to do, (laughs) that things are not black or white, even though many people often try to portray them as we're either talking about crazy, enthusiastic consent where everyone's screaming a a, a very strong, hard yes, or it's a very clear-cut case of rape. But there's a lot of gray area in between. And so uh, this next Sex and Social is going to delve into that gray area and think about some realistic ways for getting out of it. I will say if you are sensitive or a snowflake, as people like throw on, I have a feeling you might be a little controversial during this. I have a because I just knowing you and we have discussions about consent and such. I have a feeling you probably have an out of the box uh, opinion on this. Yeah, I think uh, you could. Probably say that. Uh, I 
maybe somewhat controversial, <laughs> I guess, given the current thinking or the loudest voices that we hear mm-hmm. on this topic and, and how they think we should be approaching consent, which I think are actually quite unrealistic mm. given what humans are, how humans have been behaving for millennia, both due to evolutionary forces and socialization. And we need to acknowledge that we're in a transitional period. Things are not going to change overnight and that also there are certain inborn biological tendencies that uh, we need to be mindful of and take into consideration and work with them. So I see my approach as much more realistic, much more practical than than what some other people are. Listen, I'm not going to step on your toes today because I I already got you mad earlier when I I compared the cheating with open relationships, so I'm not going to go there. But it it does sound like a fascinating uh, sex science social, Mm -hmm. May 23rd in Brooklyn. If you're around, if not, you could stream it. But uh, and you can get your tickets on Eventbrite already. Just go to Eventbrite and search for Sex Science Social and Consent, and it will come up. All right, let's get going. The science of sex foreplay. All right, Dr. Jana, I have a survey for you. And I know you always say, where did you get the survey from? Please don't, let's not slow things down. I'm totally going to do that, but come on, read me the survey. What does <laughs> this right. new survey you found Okay, say? a new survey found 56% of first-time sex with a new partner was awkward or downright terrible. 56%. Now, hmm? if my math is correct, that's mm-hmm. more than half of the people <laughs> thought the first-time sex. Excellent <laughs> mathematical ability. Yeah. And reasoning. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously this does not surprise me, you know, hanging out with you, talking about Mm -hmm. the science sex, how the fact that hookups usually, especially for the women, get shortchanged because the guy doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't know the the exact motions that's going to help her, you know, Mm -hmm. find for Mm -hmm. get the big O kind of thing going. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually kind of surprised this isn't higher. No. Well, hold on. We don't. This is not necessarily hookups. It just says first time you're having sex with a new partner that for some people could be a hookup or it could be. Something that is happening after you've been dating for weeks or months. Your first time with Your first time with someone who's going to be or already is a boyfriend or girlfriend. And so it's not necessarily a hookup, but my guess is at least some of these experiences are our hookups, but yeah, I, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I think 56% (laughs) sounds about right. It shouldn't be that high. No, shouldn't. There are ways to decrease that number, but. With uh, the way we treat sexuality and how little we know ourselves, know our partners, how poor our communication skills are around communicating what it is that we want and don't want and how to get it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you get. One in six almost. Yeah. All right. So let me. Having awkward sex. Now. I do want to point out, because otherwise I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't, Mm -hmm. that this is not a (sighs) peer-reviewed. This is not a peer-reviewed right. academic journal paper. You're right. It was conducted by one poll in conjunction with Pure Romance and examined first-time sex habits and experiences of 2,000 Americans. Yeah, that number means nothing <laughs> uh, if it's not a representative sample yeah, of yeah. Americans, right. which we don't know. I have no idea if these are or aren't. It might be. You mm-hmm. know, One poll might be one of those polling agencies that have a way of... Right, getting more or less a representative sample yeah. of Americans. We also don't know their ages and stuff. But, you know, let's say that this comes close to yeah. some representativeness. Now, what I see else here is there's some good news uh, regarding this awkward first sex. Mm-hmm. And that is that most Americans, so about 70%, say that this first awkward sex is not necessarily going to lead to them breaking things off. Oh, 
Okay. Only 30% say if the first sex was bad, that's it. Boy, how, it's not going to, we're not going to give it a second chance. How bad would that sex have to be that you never want to see the person again? It doesn't say you never want to well, see the person you know again, I mean. but it means I'm not going to have a, a long term, I'm not going to consider this person for a long term relationship, which to some extent makes sense it, depending on why it was bad yeah. and how bad it was, right? Some things obviously can improve, some things cannot. What if, for example, some of the issues were anatomical incompatibilities? I have no idea what you mean by that. You have no idea what, what I mean? What does that mean, anatomical? Mm. Uh, what, is, what are you trying to say? You, you can't think of what a, trying to say? a, what a thing. Trying to say? What are you trying to say? <laughs> Because I know you are a size queen. You are a big. You are, I am not you are a, a size big, queen. You are a big fan of big. No, <laughs> no, that's not true. And bigger is not always better. Right. There is a point at which big, bigger becomes too big. Okay. And that point is different for everybody, but everybody has a point at which. All right. Bigger is too big. Okay, good, to, good, good to know, Doctor John. But yes, that's exactly what I'm implying here with the anatomical differences. Yeah, you know, maybe if if the size does matter, whether it it, it could be too big or too small mm-hmm. or something like that, and so that might not be able to change. Yeah, and you decide that look, this does not have long term potential, or something about the way people have sex or communicate sexual needs and interests is just so unappealing to you that you're like, this is never going to get to the point where I would want it to be. And sex is very, very important to me. Therefore, we're not going to give it another try. But this is a minority of people, as we said, 30% in this survey. So 70% don't believe that the first time ultimately will define the relationship. And in fact, the survey found that people will tolerate an average of four to five bad sexual encounters with someone before they decide that it was not meant to be. See, that seemed pretty rational. Give a few (laughs) chances there. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. here's the thing, you know, we keep, we're always harp on the first time, first time. Mm. How about the second time? Because, you know, first time could be beginner's luck. Some guy could have just, <laughs> just nailed it that first time, but like just lucked into an amazing sexual experience. Mm-hmm. And then number two comes around and you're like, oh boy, yeah. I guess he was, uh, he was pretty well, lucky we, there. We're, <laughs> we already talked about this, I think, last time or, or two episodes ago that very often that first time has a lot of excitement. Yeah. Because of the novelty associated with it. And that excitement could make things better or good. And then mm. you do it. Again, the second time you're like, eh, without that novelty, this actually isn't that good. So that can happen too, but I think it's more common that things go in the other direction with that first time being, right, for 56% of people being kind of awkward or bad. And very often there's nowhere else to go from there but up. Yeah. (laughs) Right? If it was downright terrible, (laughs) if you give it a second chance, if there is a change, that change is going to be in a more positive direction. And certainly as people get to know each other a little better and what works and what doesn't get more comfortable, that will uh, improve. Now, Dr. Jana, I can confirm you are a woman, correct? Uh, yes, I believe I'm a woman. Okay. I don't. I don't know if you have all the necessary information to confirm that yourself. But, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, that's why I was asking for your help for the confirmation. Right. Because I have the top five first time sex worries for women. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which of these five can you most connect with? All right. So, okay. <laughs> what my body looks like. Sixty five percent of women were worried about that first time around. Wow, sixty five percent. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and step on your toes. I don't uh-huh. think that's a worry for you. I don't think you have any. You have no <laughs> body self confidence issues. Correct. That is correct. All right, I good. I am very right. fortunate to not worry about these things. That's not because I think I'm the most attractive no, no. woman in, on the planet, no. but by no means have uh, those uh, uh, delusions. delusions. Of grandeur, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I just don't really care. I like my body, and I'm perfectly happy with it, and I'm pretty sure that most of my partners are going to be pre- 
pretty happy with it too. So, okay. Yeah. But this is a very, very obviously, totally. it is a very common issue for mm-hmm. women. It's something that we put so much emphasis on, right? Women looking a certain way, yeah. looking pretty, looking sexy, as opposed to what they feel, what their bodies feel like. It is very clear gender difference because this particular worry is also among the top five first time sex worries for men, but it's number four. And only 30% hmm. of men compared to 65% of women say that they worry what their bodies might look like. Right. All right. So this next one, I'm not sure if it's a worry for you because I've never really <laughs> asked you about this. But pleasing my partner is a first-time sex worry for 45% of women. No, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> Look, uh, you're going to have a hard time finding a worry because I'm just a low-anxiety, low-worry person. I just don't worry okay. about things much. Okay. And certainly in the sexual realm, I feel pretty confident and comfortable and knowledgeable, so okay. I don't really have a lot of worries. Gotcha. But again, pleasing your partner, that is something that is on people's minds. Almost half. Almost half. And just to make it clear, this is not only a women's worry. In fact, this was the number one worry for the men. 55% of men, more than than the women, were worried about pleasing their partners on the first time. It's a lot of pressure. God, can I make it come this time? I don't know. No, All right. Yeah. So here's the next one. STDs. 35% of women were worried about first-time sex on that one. Yeah. You obviously have to think about that, right? Yeah. I mean, but I do have low-level concern. No, I don't really worry okay. about things. No, I have my safer sex protocols that I apply okay. to all of my sexual interactions, and I'm pretty good about it. I like how you call it protocols. Yeah, it there are protocols. It doesn't sound very romantic. Well, no. <laughs> Is it like a spreadsheet that you take out <laughs> right before you get it? No, I know the things that I do for that make me feel comfortable and good, good about my sexual health, and I do that, and I don't have a problem with it. All right. The next one I, I can answer for you. <laughs> Not being adventurous enough. 26% of women, it was a first-time sex worry. That is a serious worry for me. That is bullshit. (laughs) I don't think you're worried about that. And last but not least, experimenting with different positions. That's a worry Mm -hmm. for women first time around. Yeah, it kind of goes together, I think, with the not being adventurous enough, right? Uh, Those last two are not among men's top five. (laughs) They do not worry about not being adventurous (laughs) enough or experimenting with different positions. But they do worry about two other things that the women did not seem as worried about or certainly didn't make the top five and that's if i can last a long time Mm. about 50 percent of men were worried about that yeah and then having a partner reach orgasm 40 percent were worried about that which kind of dovetails the pleasing my partner that was a big worry and that kind of goes back to some of the conversations that we've had before that men very often are tasked with the job of knowing magically yeah. you know, what will please women, of being experienced and skillful sexual partners, but don't necessarily get a lot of feedback or don't know how to elicit feedback from their partners. And everybody kind of has this uh, uh, understanding that women are just harder to please and to yeah. make come. And so, of That's course, true, right? Well, <laughs> as we've learned, <laughs> uh, it is true when it comes to partner sex that women are less likely to orgasm, but that's not because their bodies are somehow more complicated necessarily, but it's because of all of these other things yeah. like them not necessarily knowing what they like, not being able to express it or not feeling assertive enough to express it, men not knowing how to elicit feedback on what works, what doesn't, those sexual scripts that we have in our society about the men having to initiate everything and kind of be the driver of this experience and the woman just being in the 
in the, the passenger, passenger seat, seat yeah. and kind of going along with whatever he wants and, and so on. It's funny, though, with the men's worries, a majority of them, as you see, is they're projecting the worries onto the woman. Like it's like it's it's almost like it's not really their fault. It's like they, they're worried more about the fact that the woman is going to be dissatisfied. Will I please my partner? Will I last long enough? Will I make her orgasm? Mm-hmm. So a majority of them are like their worries towards it, not not their own selfish concerns, you know? Yeah. Or what my body looks like, like yeah. all of these things, except for the STDs, which was number five worry for the men. Yeah. All of these have to do with how is my partner going to respond or yeah. perceive me in this process? So, which goes to show that both men and women have somewhat similar set of worries and anxieties when mm. it comes to these first sexual experiences that you have with a new partner. And that has to do with, am I going to be a good enough partner for this person? And are they going to like me? Mm. Are they going to walk away from this experience feeling good and pleased and, and satisfied or not? Okay, but so the survey, you know, finding that 56% of Americans have awkward or downright terrible first experiences with a new partner, what makes for a bad experience? All right, so number one for men, not reaching orgasm. Hmm. That makes sense. 40% of men say, (laughs) yeah, it's not a good experience (laughs) if I don't come. (laughs) No matter what happens, this is the only way that I'm going to be happy is if (laughs) I come here. But to be fair... Mm -hmm. Quite common reason for for women to say that sex was bad. In fact, forty four percent of women, three percent more of the women, say that not reaching orgasm constitutes bad sex. Except that for women, this is the second most common issue that constitutes bad sex. There is another issue that is even more commonly uh, perceived as leading to bad sex, and that's lack of foreplay. With fifty seven percent of women saying Mm. that lack of foreplay means this was an awkward or bad experience. And before you're like, oh, men don't want foreplay, that was number two for men. Lack Mm. of foreplay was uh, mentioned as the second most common reason that uh, leads to bad sex by 36% of men. So there is a gender difference. Clearly more women than men feel like lack of foreplay is responsible for bad sex, 57% versus 36%. Because the guy's got to make sure the number one thing is I got to make sure I come in this <laughs> this time around. I mean, sure, a, a little foreplay would have been great, but listen, as long as I'm able as to come at come. one point, I'll be good to go. <laughs> the Science of Sex goes deeper. In December of 2017, the Journal of Sex Research published a new study about motivations for infidelity. And we're here to talk to the main author about this paper and why people cheat. So it's all about cheating. It's all about cheating, yes. They surveyed almost 500 young adults who have cheated on a partner in the past, and they asked them, why'd you do it? And here with us today is Dr. Dylan Selterman, the main author of the study, to tell us what they found. Dylan Selterman received his BA in psychological and brain sciences from Johns Hopkins University and then his PhD in social health psychology from Stony Brook. He currently teaches at the University of Maryland, where he also runs the Dream Lab, where they research romantic attraction and dating, emotions like jealousy, attachment in interpersonal relationships, patterns of dreaming, sexual behavior and morality and ethics. 
Outside of the classroom, Dr. Salterman leads a mindfulness meditation group for students and writes for popular media. Dr. Dylan Salterman, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thanks for having me. So how did this come up? Uh, how did this, this study happen? Why did you end up studying motivations for infidelity? I think my interest in studying infidelity began when I was in graduate school because and you were working cheating. on my... You were cheating yeah, on right, your partners right, right. left and right? No. <laughs> Dr. Shannon, don't make the uh, guests uncomfortable. That's my job. Oh, well, you weren't doing your job, so I had to take over. So I'll, I'll tell you about a personal experience that did motivate my research, though, because oh, okay. when, I, when I was in college, my girlfriend at the time had all these really bad dreams about me. And oh. they would very often cause conflict in the relationship. Dreams uh, you at know, night. She, yeah, yeah. She, she, she would be, she'd be, wake, she'd wake up from a dream and be mad at me for something that I did to her in the dream. Oh, um, no. So, so that that actually became, uh, you know, a d pretty direct inspiration for my research in grad school. And my dissertation was actually about the dreams that people have about their romantic partners. Mm. And were you uh, cheating that, frequently in those dreams? Was that part of why she was so angry you know, at you? So, some, sometimes it was cheating. Sometimes I was just being mean to her. Sometimes like it would be kind of an abandonment thing where mm. I was like breaking up, didn't want to be with her anymore. <laughs> stuff that, stuff that I would never ever do. I mean, we did eventually break up, right. but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I wasn't like being a dick. But I can't in, imagine in you dreams, being a dick. I was just a huge asshole. Now, did you break uh, up wait, with her because of the dreams? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we, oh, we we broke up. It wasn't meant to be. Okay. It, it wasn't it wasn't going to last. But I was really interested in studying this idea that there's some connection between personal anxieties and dream content, and also how dream content might affect the way we behave with each other while we're awake, especially the next day. So mm -hmm. that became the basis for my dissertation project and. One of the things that I found in that study, which I was not expecting to find, was that infidelity was a really big theme, like that emerged in a lot of people's mm. dreams. So I, because of that, I was kind of motivated to study infidelity more and to understand why people are cheating and, you know, what, what is the psychology of infidelity? And it just so happens one of my friends, Justin Garcia, He's a big, you know, researcher in the field of sex research. Yes, we've had him on the podcast before. Oh, nice, yeah. nice, nice. Uh, yeah, so he has an interest in studying infidelity too. So we, you know, put our heads together and, and created this study. So I think I should probably ask everybody who studies infidelity this, this question going forward because it's been such a difficult thing to answer from all the studies that we have. But how prevalent is infidelity? Or what's your way of yeah. answering the question of mm -hmm. how prevalent is infidelity? <laughs> Uh, well, I, th this is one of those things that, you know, we, 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 ha we don't have any experimental evidence on, on this topic. You know, we, we don't have cheating in the laboratory. We, right. we, we only have retrospective accounts of what people are willing to admit. And very often research shows that if you tweak it a little bit, so, uh, for example, if you do like a bogus pipeline where you tell participants, oh, by the way, we'll know if you're lying then the number goes up a little bit. So people are probably cheating more than they're willing to admit in general. Mm -hmm. That being said, the best evidence we have for rates of marital infidelity in America is somewhere between you know 20 and 45 you percent. Know. So 20 to 45 percent of all marriages will experience at least one infidelity? I think it's lifetime prevalence of marital infidelity. So that doesn't mean 20 to 45% of marriages, but, you know, lifetime incidents of 
infidelity in marriage is somewhere between 20 and 45 percent. Um, so if, if you look, you know, specifically within the past year or this marriage relative to previous marriages, then it might be a little smaller. Right. Then again, it also depends on how you're defining it. And a lot of couples disagree about whether mm-hmm. there was an infidelity. Like a lot of couples will say, you know, one, one member says, I did not cheat. And the other says, yes, you did. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes they'll be like, no, we were on a break then. It wasn't really ah, cheating. Right. Or, you know, it, it was just a kiss. It wasn't really cheating, that kind of thing. So it, it's, it's, it does depend on the definition you're using. We also see that rates of infidelity are higher in dating relationships. So the studies that I've seen on dating couples, it's more like 40 to 50 percent and some studies over 50%. So I think I'd like to say that it's those numbers are high enough to say that it's common. Mm. It, it's it's a, it's a common thing and you know it, it it's going to vary to some degree across culture but there's there's good evidence that it happens pretty commonly all across the world. And do men cheat more than women? Yes, but again, <laughs> you know, it kind of depends on how you're defining cheating and you know, I think sometimes what people are willing to admit will change based on social desirability. There's evidence for the sexual double standard. So right. perhaps if we were to change that, there would be more women admitting to infidelity. And at the same time, you know, look at emotional versus sexual infidelity. Probably men are doing sexual infidelity more. Perhaps women are doing a little bit of emotional infidelity more. Mm-hmm. But again, we, we don't necessarily have solid evidence for I mean, I mean, I don't feel comfortable ascribing this to <laughs> yeah. uh, underlying gender traits. But that's a separate question, right, of why you might be seeing this gender difference. But the first question is, is there a gender difference in the behavior? Like, are men more likely to? If you're looking at in, sexual infidelity, yes, right. the rates of cheating are higher for men. Right, right. And yes, we could we could argue about whether there's something biological and evolutionary driving driving those differences or it's all due to cultural differences or socialization of men and women. But but you're not right. here to talk about that. True. Today. So we're not going to grill you on that. He answered that True. very quickly. True, yes, True. let's move on, yes. please. <laughs> right on. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm going to save you from that. So why is Dylan here, Dr. Shauna? <laughs> He's here to tell us why people cheat. Okay, go for it, Dylan. Why- <laughs> Joe, no, wait, Joe, why, why do people cheat? What do you think? Why, why do you think people cheat? Um, I think there's so many reasons. I would think maybe ego. Maybe it's uh, yeah. they, maybe sometimes that they don't feel like they're getting their ego stroked enough in a relationship <laughs> that they need to get it done somewhere else. And is, you laugh stroke. Would I that didn't be mean, and, I didn't and, mean, and ego is a Freudian word for what? <laughs> what? What are we really stroking? Uh, yeah, see, you <laughs> no, guys I'm both kidding, made smiles. You guys both smiled. Yeah, no one's talking about penises here. <laughs> Boy, you can't even say that with a straight face. I'm totally saying it was But yeah, no, I think a lot of times... So you think that's number one reason? Yeah, yeah and I think that goes for men and women. If a woman is not being taken care of home, she'll f- emotionally cheat or physically cheat with a, someone else. Okay. Is that one of them? Is, to, is, is Joe right? right? Yeah, I think in, 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 in multiple ways you could be right. You could be not you know, sexually satisfied in the relationship, and also it might have something to do with a more abstract sense of self and you know whether whether you're feeling emotionally nurtured in the relationship whether you're having those ego needs fulfilled can also you know motivate infidelity 
So in, in popular consciousness, I think infidelity is almost always driven by relationship problems, by some sort of deficit that you're not getting out of your relationship, whether it's sexual or emotional or some other way. Is this how we've been thinking and studying uh, this issue in the academic literature as well? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that word deficit because the deficit model is kind of one of the prevailing theoretical ideas about infidelity, that they're they're is some underlying problem in the relationship that's causing people to cheat. And I, I think part of the reason why that's such a dominant model is because there's some truth to it, that you know very often couples do have conflicts and problems, and then there is cheating. But in this study, What's Justin an alternative? See, what, if it's not a deficit, what else could it be driving people's infidelity? It could be things that they're just interested in doing that, don't have to do with their partner. And, you know, the, we, we have weird ideas about romantic relationships and exclusivity that don't apply to other relationships. Like if you have a friendship with someone and you really enjoy watching sports with them, but they're not interested necessarily in talking politics, you might have another friend that you, you know, talk about politics right. with. And that would not be a problem for a friendship anyway. You wouldn't consider and, it a deficit in your friendship with the person who doesn't like yeah. to talk politics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, yet, yet we have this idea that if there's a desire you have to do something or feel something with another partner, that it must stem from some underlying conflict with the primary partner. And that, you know, that, that logic doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense to me just logically, and it doesn't make sense given the evidence that we found. Why do you see a lot of, uh, I know John is not a big uh, pop culture person, but a big story uh, that hit the country recently was the Tristan Thompson, uh, Chloe Kardashian <laughs> thing. And the fact yeah. that he has habitually cheated on women who have been pregnant. Is there something just, a, is, I mean, for lack of a better term, is there a screw loose there that just is like, I can't control myself, I have to have sex with other women while, because I have a pregnant woman at home? Okay, hold on. Uh, huh? Huh? What do you mean? Can, can you Joe, bring you might have Dr. John up to speed? I have no idea oh. who any of these people are. All right, what they've yeah. done. <laughs> you know who the Kardashians are, right? I've heard of them. Okay, one of them is Chloe. Okay. She has been dating a famous basketball player, Tristan Thompson, from okay. the C Cleveland Cavaliers. Okay. And she, is, she was, at the point, very pregnant. Okay. And then during the pregnancy, he was caught cheating on her multiple times. Okay. Publicly. Okay. Out of clubs, hotels, and such. Okay. But this was the second time he had done that. He had cheated on a previous baby mama. While she was pregnant? Yes. Okay. So my question to Dylan is, why does... And, and this is not uh, a... Uh, he's not an outlier. This is... I could bring up more celebrities. Like Kevin Hart has been accused of this as well. Uh, what is it with these guys? Is it because they have so much thrusted upon them that they can't say no? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Well, okay. So if you're a professional athlete or anyone who's rich and famous, you're just going to have more opportunities across the board. And the research does show that people who have more opportunities are more likely to cheat just because there's more opportunities. So for, for anyone who has higher social status or more powerful, more wealthy, then that's probably going to be a thing that, that keeps coming up. So you, you, you probably see that with politicians too. If you know, we ran the numbers there, not just basketball players right. or musicians or, you know, and anyone like that. Probably there is a level of self-control that, you know, we differ as human beings on how much self-control we have. So when you are presented with that opportunity, some people are better able to resist the temptation and say no, and other people are less able to resist the temptation. 
Yeah, but also being in that position of social power does change your decision making. And it does, mm. you know, in, in a sense, changes your ethics. Hmm. So it, it, it doesn't surprise me, like whenever there's a, a scandal with a prominent politician who's one of these like very uh, socially conservative family values person, and then they get caught cheating. Right. And that to me, as a psychologist, that's not very surprising because they're in this position of power and they do. There, there is a different process that happens when you're elevated in, in social status. I'm glad you mentioned that. Elaborate on that a little bit for people who are not familiar with this effect of, of power on your personal ethics. Well, if you're in a, a power dynamic where you're the superior, then your relationship to others changes and you see them differently. You see them as in a different category. Like a subordinate? Of, of person. Yeah, a subordinate. Hmm. And that there are just different rules that apply. And uh, very often people feel justified in their actions if they think, oh, well, I've been elevated. I'm part of a, a different group now and different rules apply. You know, there's this expression, drunk with power. It, it is kind of intoxicating when when you've been elevated to high social status in your society or your community. And you know and, that you can get away with stuff much more than if you didn't have that level of power, right? Right. And of course, if you have enough resources and, and power, you can maybe use some of that to hush people up and right. say, you know, either either coerce them or just pay them, as we've seen, you know, just here's some money. Don't tell people that we did this. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there's there, there's resources that go into this as well. So the people who are drunk with power, do they know that they're in the wrong or they just they don't realize that they're in the wrong? Sometimes if you if you catch people, you know, they they, they might come around with a little bit of cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Um, maybe someone who's been caught and it's been revealed, oh, yes, you know, I, I did do this thing. You're right. It was wrong. Uh, I'll, I won't do it again. But if if they're not caught, then and there's no repercussion. You know, it's 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 hard to make them see the wrong. Wow, that's so cr it's almost like you're describing a sociopath to a certain extent. They just <laughs> no, because it, it's not an underlying trait. I mean, you oh, could okay. take virtually anyone and put them in this mm -hmm. position and it would be the same thing. I mean, that's the big insight from social psychology, which is it's the power of the situation, not the person. So if you take a person and put them in that situation, they're more likely to behave in a way that's consistent with that norm mm -hmm. rather than because of their character. Yeah, it's, it's the it's the evil of the situation, basically. Right. You have all these experiments. Well, they'll just get college students who are all the same and randomly assign them half of them to get more money than the than the other half. Yeah. And whoever ended up with more money, they end up acting in this more kind of it's so, it's just, entitled way. They just can't handle it. So if you were to take that power hungry politician, Dylan, and made him a farmer in a town with six people, he probably, <laughs> right, right. He probably would not cheat. Right. Well, certainly less likely. Yeah, less likely. It would be less likely. Huh. Okay, let's <laughs> let's go back to some of the reasons. And I mean, we've been talking about some of these things, but uh, let's do this a little more systematically. So, you had a study right. in which you surveyed almost 500 people who have cheated before, and you gave them a questionnaire c containing 77 items that represented different motivations for infidelity, asking them to agree or disagree with how much each of those 77 motivations were true of their infidelity experience. So uh, that's a lot of items. You're saying there yeah. are 77 reasons for cheating? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. So when, when scientists study something like sexual motivation, there's lots of different ways that you can ask the question, and it's important to capture it from a lot of different angles. So we could ask people, you know, do you feel uncomfortable sharing your sexual fantasies and desires with your partner? And that's why you cheated. We can also ask, are you unsatisfied with your current sex life? Is that why you cheated? 
Uh, do you want to have sex with partners of a different gender? And that's why you cheated. So all of those survey items might cluster around a single factor that captures sexual reasons why people cheat. Mm. So there's there's 77 survey items, but they you know cluster in these uh, smaller groups. So we found eight factors that kind of explain motivations for infidelity based on those 77 items. Okay, let's hear the eight factors, what those were, maybe some sample motivations and how common they were. First, we have lack of love. This is you know, I, I fall out of love with my partner. I'm bored with the relationship. It's, you know, things are stagnant. There's no excitement. And on average, 77% of the sample is at least somewhat agreed with those statements. If you have a survey item that says somewhat uh, or strongly disagree, neutral, somewhat or strongly agree. So it, we, we saw that 77% had at least somewhat, some level of agreement with that group of statements. So people are right when they think of this as one of the more common reasons for why people cheat. Lack of yeah, love. certainly it is. Yeah. It is up there. It's definitely if, if not the highest, it was certainly one of the highest that we found. Okay, what else? Uh, we also have neglect. So th these are things like my partner isn't spending enough time with me, uh, me feeling emotionally distant, feeling neglected, that kind of thing. And in our study, we found 70% of the sample at least somewhat agreeing with those items. And women here were more likely to agree with this than men were, right? Yeah, the effect was small, but it was significant. So I think 62% of men and 77% of women at least somewhat agreed with that. So not a huge difference, but it's there. What's number three? Then we have variety. So this, this is about things like I want to explore all opportunities for sex, greater number of sexual partners. One item we had was about wanting to have as many partners as possible before getting married. <laughs> and 74% said they had at least somewhat of an agreement with those items. And there was a gender effect here as well. 87% of men, at least someone agreed with that. And 63% of women, at least someone agreed. Mm, not surprising goes with uh, with the gender stereotypes that we might have about men being more driven by variety. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. So the next one is situation. And this was kind of a grab bag of a bunch of different things that are, uh, you know, conceptually related to what we were just talking about, the power of the situation. One was they're drunk and intoxicated, not thinking clearly. One item was about stressors kind of getting to you and influencing mm -hmm. thoughts. This is really just about people expressing that there was something about that moment that caused them to cheat that would not necessarily repeat itself. Oh, like maybe out of town mm -hmm. and uh, got drunk at a bar or something like yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. We did find a gender effect here all, as well. Uh, so 79% of men, someone agreed and 66% of women, someone agreed. Okay. What more do we have? What, what are some of the other factors? I think we covered four. Lack of love, neglect, variety, and the situational factors. What else? So this next one, uh, esteem, is actually my favorite. Ooh. And it's, it's, it's because it's, it's really about, like, like Joe was kind of saying before, and, and non-facetiously, yeah, non-facetiously <laughs> ego, that this is, this is about people's feelings of self-esteem and asserting their independence and autonomy. One item we had was about proving to myself or proving to others that I'm still attractive. Mm. And so this, this, this really doesn't have anything to do with underlying relationship dysfunction, but it's just, I want to feel better about myself. And that's not to say that this is justified, because I know we, we tend to, in America, have a very 
a positive view of self-esteem and independence and autonomy. We see those as very good things. But in this case, they're motivating something unethical. They're motivating mm -hmm. cheating behavior. And uh, I, I think this is it's very important that we pay attention to this. It's, it's very important that we understand sometimes, even if a relationship is going well, people might have these ego needs that, uh, you know, they're, they're wanting to satisfy with another partner. And this was relatively common, if, if I'm reading the numbers correctly, some, somewhere around 55-60% of people said that at least somewhat they were motivated by the self-esteem needs. That's correct. And similar across gender. So uh, right. uh, men and women are, are both endorsing these items to the same extent. Hmm. Yeah, not, not surprising. And then we have low commitment. Yeah, so this was mainly, I think, about the definitions people have for committed relationships and exclusivity. So with some of the items, people said, oh, I just wasn't very committed to my partner. And then we had items like, you know, technically, we never had the talk. We never mm -hmm. defined it as a quote unquote relationship. We never said we're exclusive. Mm. So there, there's a lot of like, you know, technical language going on here right. in terms of commitment. Uh, so it re really a different thing than the lack of love. And this is another insight from the study because previous studies have found that, you know, these feelings of love and commitment are uh, both kind of the same thing. But what we found is, no, they're actually kind of different. That one, one is more about excitement versus boredom. And this one is about the label that you're giving to the relationship. And this one we found 41% of our participants at least somewhat agreeing with and similar across gender. And these were all young people. And so these were not marital relationships, right? The, many of these relationships that, that they had experienced an infidelity in could have been relatively casual or we're just starting to date kind of thing, right? Some of them, yeah. I mean, young people can have very emotionally invested, significant relationships, but you're right that we had very few marital couples in the study. Right. Um, so it, it could be that, that you know, they're overall lower commitment in this sample than you would find in a sample of slightly older adults. Right. What else do we Next have? Next one, yeah, we had anger. So this anger. is about, you know, feeling a, a high, intense negative emotion and we had items like my partner mistreated me. We had a fight and I was pissed. My partner cheated on me and I wanted mm. to cheat back kind of thing. Revenge one, motivated me to, to do it. So the, the, this is, you know, exactly what it looks like. And we <laughs> saw a similarity across gender there as well. So if, if someone is scorned, then they're going to want to cheat in a sense because of that. And how common was this? Uh, 43% in our sample. Wow. Some, at, least, at least somewhat agreeing to that. Okay, and the final? Now we have sexual desire and exploration. So these are things like uh, my partner's not interested in the type of sex that I want, or there's not enough sex with my primary partner, the affair partner maybe was more sexy or more sexually gifted. And also we had some kind of exploring my own sexuality items in there too. How is this different from the variety one that you talked about earlier? The variety one is more about having a greater number of sexual partners, whereas the sexual desire is really about the quality of sex. And I think this kind of underscores, and we can talk about this more because we're going to talk about personality traits, but something like uh, sociosexual orientation, which is more about uncommitted sex 
but doesn't really have anything to do with sex drive. Like a lot of people can feel a high degree of sex drive. You know, they, they really want sex intensely and all the time, but they want it with one partner. Mm. They're not necessarily promiscuous. So sexual desire, you know, that, that can motivate someone to cheat, but it doesn't mean they want to have 100 sex partners. It just mm. means they want one partner to explore this new thing that they're really interested in, and mm. that's it. So and variety, if they, I think, And if they don't get it number. from the primary partner, that that's why they're going elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. So th- there was a big gender difference on, on this one. Uh, yeah. Right? So there, there was a gender difference there. 45% of men, at least someone agreeing, and 21% of women, at least someone agreeing. Mm. So this was much less common for the women. This was the lowest one, in fact, for the women, much lower than pretty much every other factor. Whereas for the men... Yeah, that's true. It was kind of on par with some of the other ones like anger and low commitment and esteem and such. How do you explain that? Well, it mm-hmm. could just be that men are kinky and want lots of different types of sex that their partner is not willing to engage in. And they're looking for it in other places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the best guess. We, right. I, I don't have any you know, deeper explanation for the gender <laughs> effect than that. Right, right. And I also think we, in a way, we tell women that it's amazing sex or complete sexual fulfillment in a long-term relationship might not be the most important thing, whereas I think we encourage men a little more to focus on that as something that they should be looking for or making sure that they get. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I see so many examples, at least in pop culture, of the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. Things like Sex in the City, you know, and and other types of shows and movies where women are very vocal about, you know, in in detail about Mm -hmm. the type of sex they're having or not having. I think women are actually more interested in having those conversations than men. And I'm saying this mostly out of personal experience (laughs) where, you know, I I, vouch for that sitting next to Dr. Jana. So I'm I'm with you there. when, when, When I'm talking about sex, with my guy friends, it's like, did you have sex? Yes. Okay, great. Move on. And <laughs> with women, it's like, well, tell me more. Like, what did it look like? And what was this? And what positions? Right. And all this that men just don't care about hearing. So I, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe it is a socialization thing. Maybe it is, like you said, where women are kind of socialized to focus on that less than men. But I'm, I'm not sure that that's true. I think if anything, maybe the difference is just disgust sensitivity and kinkiness. Like, I, th- I think there's at least some evidence that men are just kinkier. And that's why you see this greater interest in sexual exploration. But Fifty Shades of Grey, I think, was pretty indicative that women are very much interested in a lot of these things, too. And well, some of those it- women that you would think are the least kinky or adventurous in the bedroom. Well, okay, so I'm I'm not really prepared to speak to <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey mostly. I I've, I've I haven't read the books or seen the movie and I I I've heard bad things about it from people who are in like who who are, who are actually in the kink communities or be studying it. Yeah. Uh, that it's it's not really indicative of healthy normative kinkiness. But anyway, putting that putting that issue aside, there there might be a difference mainly in terms of fantasy versus wanting the actual experience. Like, Mm -hmm. like maybe women are drawn to this type of story because it's an erotic fantasy. And indeed we, we see evidence that women are more drawn to these kind of narrative storyline, pornographic and erotic, uh, 
material. Right, right. Whereas men are thinking more in terms of images and, and video. And it, it, it could be that this reflects the libido of women in terms of fantasy, but not in terms of what they're actually trying to pursue. But it, it, it also is worth noting when we talk about sex, putting aside the socialization and the sexual double standard stuff, when you're thinking about the perspective of women who are trying to pursue different types of sex and different type of partners, that's a lot more dangerous, especially if it's a you know, heterosexual interaction. Like men are dangerous and men are less sexy. So <laughs> if it, it, it could be that women are thinking about sex and internally maybe they're exploring some fantasies, but they're not acting on them because it's more risky. Like right. that's just that's just a fact. Right, right, right. And even though you did find some of these differences, gender differences in, in the study in, in motivations for, for cheating, I think it's worth noting that when you look at how strongly people were motivated by by some of these different reasons, the top three, right, strongest for both men and women were variety, lack of love and situational factors. Those That's right. all three came up as sort of the, the most endorsed reasons for both genders. Yeah, I, I think that the base rates for these different motivations, especially the top ones that you mentioned, underscores the fact that there's more similarity than there's difference across gender. So I think we can talk about it as as important limitation of the study is that these were all young people. The average age was 20. And so mostly they were college students. You had some Reddit users. But how much can we generalize on older people? Wouldn't older people have different reasons for cheating given their different time and developmental period and situational circumstances? Sure, sure. So this is a, an excellent question. We, we talked about this in the paper, the limitation that you know stems from demographics. Here's, here's our thesis. And again, we don't have direct evidence for this, but the, the, our, our thesis is that there's going to be some differences across age and maybe other demographics. There's going to be some differences mainly in the details, but there will be these kind of overarching themes that are consistent across age. So for example, other studies that have come out recently show that people are more likely to cheat when they reach these kind of landmark birthdays, like they're about to turn 40 years old. <laughs> okay, you know, that that specifically is not the same for young people, but it is still a situational variable that doesn't have to do with the nature of the relationship. Right. And that's probably similar to the type of situations that young adults are in, like they're going away on spring break. And so it's it's kind of the, the differences in the details, but there are similarities in, in the overarching themes. And if you think about stereotypes of younger people, especially when they're in college experimenting with different types mm -hmm. of sex, different types of partners, but then also, you know, think about Lisa Diamond's work on sexual fluidity. She has data on women who identify as heterosexual for decades in their life and then in their 40s, fall in love with another woman. Right. It seems to me like the motivation to explore one's sexuality is present in young adults and middle-aged adults and <laughs> right. older adults. So the details are different, but I think there are similar underlying themes. So you think even in older adults, you'd still have these eight factors more or less, but the exact percentages might vary somewhat. Well, the, the eight factors might also be a function of the specific items that we used. And we encourage people in you know, future research, we encourage more studies on the different types of motivations. So you might get even more like I, I would think, you know, you could easily hypothesize over 10, maybe even over 15 or 20 different mm -hmm. factors, depending on the types of items that you're using. Right. Um, so it, it wouldn't surprise me to get a different set of factors there. Also, the, the yeah, main, you could add like children work. 
I mean, that's that that changes things a lot in relationships. Exactly. Yeah. He sold me. I'm I'm on Don Team Dylan. I I, I totally get Dylan. it. Okay. I totally get it. Great, great. I'm glad you got Joe. <laughs> so this was only one part of the study. The other part of your study looked at how different personality traits are linked to motivations for infidelity. So based on this study, based on other research, are different types of people more likely to cheat for different types of reasons? Yes. So I mentioned briefly uh, earlier this personality traits, sociosexual orientation, not to be confused with sexual orientation, but sociosexual <laughs> orientation is about the extent to which people want their sex to be in the context of a committed, emotional, loving relationship. So basically, the degree to which people think that sex and love should overlap. And people who are unrestricted in their like sociosexual orientation uh, prefer to have lots of different sex with different partners and not necessarily have an emotional attachment to them. The sociosexuality actually tells us a bit about people who cheat as motivated by variety. So mm-hmm. the, the, the variety motivation was strongly predicted by sociosexual orientation. That was one of the strongest effects that we found in the entire study. Sociosexuality did not predict any of the other motivation factors, though. It only predicted variety. Not surprising. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's what sociosexuality is about, right? You want variety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we had variables pertaining to attachment security. So two varieties of insecure attachment, anxiety and avoidance, which are is essentially about you're feeling comfortable, emotionally secure in a relationship, or in this case, feeling insecure. And people who are anxious tend to think that their partners are going to abandon them. And people who are avoidant think that they should maintain emotional distance because they don't want to get hurt. Right. So um, th- those two items predict motivation to cheat based on things like neglect or anger, lack of love, esteem. So they're, they're, mm. they're thinking about relationship deficits, but also trying to make themselves feel better. So <laughs> then we had these uh, mindset items including growth mindset versus destiny mindset or romanticism. Explain and that. Th- this is uh, about to what extent do you think that dysfunction or problems in relationships can be solved through effort or how much of it is just compatibility and chemistry that's completely beyond your control. So people who have destiny think that if there's a relationship problem, then that's not necessarily something that could be solved through effort. And so they were more likely to cheat based on things like lack of love or neglect uh, or low commitments. You know, they're thinking there's something wrong with the relationship. Okay, I'm going to go cheat. Whereas Mm. with a growth mindset predicted those types of things in the other direction. So growth mindset means that people were less likely to be motivated to cheat for those reasons. So we we saw some small but negative associations there for for growth mindset people. And different people have tend to be more on one end of that spectrum versus the other, yeah. right? To go back to the reasons, is cheating for some of these reasons worse for the relationship than cheating for some other reasons? That is an excellent question for future studies. <laughs> we, we, we said that in the paper. Mm-hmm. We said it would, be, it would be great to investigate to what extent the relationship suffers more based on some types of uh, motivation for infidelity factors compared to others. What and would you, you hypothesize? Could, yeah, so so if if we want to speculate a little bit and have some fun, I think it would probably be tougher to overcome, you know, the, an infidelity motivated by anger than mm-hmm. variety. You mm-hmm. know, I I can I can envision a couple who, you know, they they have these underlying anger issues and not only do they have to overcome that, but they have to overcome the infidelity itself. Whereas another couple things are going pretty well, maybe there's a little bit of conflict, maybe there's a little bit of insecurity. 
and one partner cheats mainly because they want to have another sexual partner and they realize you know what maybe we can't fulfill each other's needs completely 100% maybe we need to rethink monogamy maybe we need to open things up a little bit and i'm not saying that you know this justifies cheating this is not to say that it's right for someone to cheat in that instance if you have a monogamous agreement you should keep it but what i'm saying is maybe it's the case that after an episode of infidelity motivated by variety or esteem then it it could be more easily repaired in that relationship um curious to see some some research on that and also how it actually works out what couples do in in real life right if an infidelity has happened and then how it gets resolved and how often that breaks the marriage or the or, or the relationship uh, versus maybe open it up to some consensual form of non-monogamy. So I'm going to let you in on a little bit of unpublished data that Justin mm-hmm. and I also collected. We oh, wanted to please. see if we could um, you know, elaborate on this a little bit. We had included it with the paper that we submitted to the Journal of Sex Research, but ultimately they told us to scrap that part. Okay. Uh, but essentially we looked at these kind of behavioral outcomes, including breakup rates. So again, take this with a grain of salt. This has not gone through peer review. It has mm-hmm. not been published, but we found that essentially people are more likely to break up following the infidelity if it's motivated by one of these deficit factors like anger or lack of love or neglect or something like that. And Mm -hmm. when it's one of the other ones like situation or esteem, then breakups are less likely to happen. All right. So we already have some data to answer this question. <laughs> but that but that doesn't necessarily right. mean so I, I don't want, you know, people to think, okay, well if it's it's if there's a breakup here and not there, that's necessarily a good thing. I mean sometimes relationships do have to end like we were talking about right. before. So just because people are staying together doesn't necessarily mean it's a more positive outcome for the relationship. It could be that the people in those cases didn't tell their partners and lived and kept on living a lie. <laughs> right, that's, right. that's not good. So it, it's not necessarily more positive or more negative, but we do see the difference in breakup rates there. Uh, do you think we're too hard on infidelity in our society? I know this goes beyond your data and all that, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's speculate a little bit. <laughs> um, I, I mean, th- this is kind of a philosophical question more than an empirical question. It, it really depends on your idea of morality. And it may be the case that we're too hard on infidelity. It may be the case that most societies are too hard on infidelity. It may be that infidelity is a problem, but it doesn't have to be a death knell for your relationship. But I'm a big believer in, you know, this kind of this the idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy mm. that if if, you know, if your partner wears a green hat and you think green hats are evil, then your relationship's probably going to suffer a lot. Mm. And if your partner cheats on you and you think this is because my partner doesn't love me or that there's some underlying huge problem in our relationship, mm. then that's probably going to have that effect. Right. So we, we kind of, we're, we're our own worst enemies here. We're, we're, we're our, you know, creating more of a problem maybe than there needs to be in many instances. And even if it's true that infidelity is a sign of relationship dysfunction, then it could be a symptom rather than a cause, which means the relationship was likely going to suffer even without the infidelity. Mm. And yet people point to the infidelity as this key thing that breaks everything. Um, I, I don't think there's good evidence to support that idea. And I think that you know, a lot of this is motivated by sociocultural factors like social norms. And I think if consensual non-monogamy were 
more accepted and more common and more tolerated, then I think people would be more receptive to the idea, okay, you know, maybe my partner wants to have sex with someone else and that doesn't have to be a tragedy. I think very often when people think about consensual non-monogamy, they imagine these very involved or intense types of open relationships, like we're going to have sex with other people every weekend or several times a week kind of thing. And I almost think that in many cases, a mostly monogamous arrangement that just allows for like a tiny little bit or very infrequent, yeah, Yeah. very infrequent wiggle room, like maybe once a year or once every whatever yeah. that or if on something birthday. on your birthday <laughs> well <laughs> hopefully not on your birthday because you know hopefully you're, you're probably spending it with your partner right. unless you're doing a little threesome adjacent to your birthday maybe but yeah after, sure. <laughs> yeah it's, it's like it, it dan savage a... coined that term monogamish right yeah, that's right. kind of what you're describing yeah i almost feel like if we allow for a little bit of that wiggle room then many pretty decent relationships that don't need to end wouldn't end would get saved and people would benefit from having a little more flexibility around this yeah I agree. Awesome. Well, Dylan, thank you so much for being on the Science of Sex podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me. The Science of Sex Afterglow. Dr. John, before we go, I have one question for you. Okay. Does having sex with a robot count as sex? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, w- I would think so. It, yeah. Why, why wouldn't it? Okay. Because, you know, we've mentioned before that robot sex could soon be a thing that's Uh going to be pretty normal. Uh Well, they asked a bunch of people, and according to a survey, 39% of people say it counts as masturbation, while 21% say it counts as sex. Okay. So you actually consider getting it on with a robot sex? So when you asked me if I thought of that as sex, (laughs) my definition of sex is pretty broad. Broad, I got it. Right? So masturbation and any kind of sexual behavior, any kind of sexual engagement, in my mind, fell under that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I think the, your question should have been, does that count as partnered sex? <laughs> no, but, but that that's what it is. Right. And, I, and, and I don't know. I guess depending... <sighs> okay, because you're under the 40%, because 40% of people said they're not sure whether it was sex or oh, masturbation. Oh, yeah, 40% weren't sure. So... But <laughs> yeah, because right, we we think about you have all different kinds of toys, whether they're vibrators or fleshlights, yeah. you know, all of these kinds of things, sex dolls, right? And and you kind of think of them as sex aids that aid masturbation, right? Because they involve you and an inanimate object, sure. object, yeah. as opposed to another partner. But with the robot stuff, especially if they get pretty good at the AI. Mm-hmm. Kind of where they can do stuff on their own without you having to do all the work. Right, right. Where they seem to be showing agency and they're engaging in this behavior in a way that feels reciprocal. Mm. Then we're getting closer and closer to something that feels like partnered sex. Okay, and I know we did the super deep dive on cheating. They this did come up in this survey. Oh yeah, if if it counts as cheating. Yeah. So the survey found thirty percent of people think it counts as cheating on your sig other if you get it on with the robot. How many? 30%. 30%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this goes back to some of the stuff that we were talking about with Dylan, that the definitions of infidelity are quite variable. There are mm. certain things that right everybody agrees on, okay. like if you have penetrative sex with <laughs> yeah. another living being, pretty much everybody agrees that that would count as cheating. But everything else, like all these other behaviors, there's much less agreement. So yeah. I guess a third of people thinking that robot sex would count is not surprising. It's important to talk Mm. to your partner about what they would count as infidelity and make sure you are on board so that there are no misunderstandings when you go and hook up with that robot. 
All right. Well, how many relationships will end when a partner goes, "Hey, hun, I want to have sex with a robot." How many? Uh, what's the percentage of those relationships well, ending? We'll find out as soon as robots become more available as sexual partners. All right. Twenty years from now, when we do another episode about robot sex, we may have a totally different perspective. Are we? even going to be alive in 20 years? I hope I am, for Christ's sake. Jeez. <laughs> all right, will we be alive next week? Will we have an episode next week? We will have an episode next week if all goes well, and, you know, unless Dr. Jana get hits by a All right, car. all right, let's not get so dark no? here. We're ending on a happy note here. <laughs> okay, okay, fine. Next week, we have Dr. Lori Brado, who has been doing a lot of work on treatment for low sexual desire in women. So she's been doing a lot of research as well as therapy with women who come seeking help for having lost their libido. And we're going to talk to her about what are some effective and not so effective strategies for dealing with this issue. Robots? Maybe robots. <laughs> Give the women robots. Hot Our... robots. Ripped ro- robots <laughs> All with right. big Again, it didn't have, the looks have nothing to do with it. Succulent, uncircumcised Oh, jeez. All right. <laughs> now you're thinking about yourself for a second there. No, no. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, sure. All right. Anyway, we'll see you next time. If you enjoy the podcast, please make sure you rate and review us on iTunes. We will see you next time. Bye, Dr. Jana. Wait, wait, wait. wait. That was way too quick. I wanted to remind people that if they want links to all the studies that we talked about, mm-hmm. they want recaps of the episodes, they can find that on my website on drjana.com under the blog section. Okay. And then if they like what they see, yeah. they can read and review us. That's on the iTunes store, yes. And they can also support us by becoming a Patreon supporter on patreon.com slash drjana for anything as little as a dollar or two all the way up to hundreds of dollars. Love it. Yeah. I- if you like what we do and want to help us keep going, please consider becoming a supporter. And if we make enough money, we could probably buy our own sex robot. Yes. And <laughs> we will pet... The sex robot on the, camera for you. The uncircumcised pet robot. Yes, I, I insist <laughs> on an uncircumcised All pet right. robot. Goodbye, Dr. Jana. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, follow them on Science of Sex Podcast or on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast. This has been The Science of Sex.